A reading from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 6, beginning with verse 9. The Gospel of the Lord. When you pray, pray like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done. This is the Gospel of the Lord. Thank you, Riley. Jesus tells us that whenever we pray, we should ask our Father to see that his will is done. It's this passion for the Father's will that drove Jesus' own life and ministry. It's an intense, burning intention that the purpose of God the Father will be done in my life and in the lives of of those around me and indeed of the entire world. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven where everything goes according to God's will and good will pleasure, to pray for obedience, to pray that a father would give me a heart that's surrendered fully to his will, ready to suffer for his sake, uh, an obedience and a faithfulness to God that would, would grow and flourish, not only in my own heart, but in the whole human community, a longing to be changed. God, I don't want to be like this. I want you to change my heart. I want you to break me of my sin. I want you to deepen my repentance and grow my love for you and my understanding of your gospel. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It's a longing for the Father's glory to be made manifest in the midst of of our lives through our obedience, willingly yielding our heart to whatever he wants. It's a radical kind of prayer. Not many Christians pray for that. It's interesting, when you look at how Jesus taught us to pray, there's seven petitions in the Lord's Prayer. The first is, God, may your name be hallowed and treated as something holy. The second is, may your will be done. Asking for obedience, that God's will will be done. And then, then asking for his kingdom to come, his rule, before we ever get to any personal requests. The first three of seven things for which Jesus wants you to plead with your Father are all about Him, about His will, His kingdom, and His name being treated as something that is holy. Let's look at Matthew. It's chapter 24. We're going to read verses 36 through 45. This is the gospel of our Lord Christ. And Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to them, Sit here while I go over there and pray. And he took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee along with them, and he began to be sorrowful and troubled. And then he said to them, My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. Going a little farther, he fell with his face to the ground and prayed, My father, if it's possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. Then he returned to his disciples and he found them sleeping. Could you men not keep watch with me for one hour? He asked Peter. Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the body is weak. He went away a second time and he prayed, My father, if it is not possible for this cup to be taken away, unless I drink it, may your will be done. When he came back, 
He again found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy, and so he left them. He went away once more, and he prayed the third time, saying the same thing. And then he returned to the disciples, and he said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Look, the hour is near, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. What do we see here? We see prayer that is fully surrendered to God the Father's will. Jesus, in verse 39, says, My Father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me. Understand, Jesus is absolutely, positively asking to avoid going to the cross. There's no doubt about it. He's saying three times, if it's possible, let this cup be taken from me. The cross is going to be abs- you know, absolutely a horrific experience. The cross is going to involve far more than physical suffering and death because upon the cross, our Lord Jesus is about to absorb into himself all of the wrath and justice of Almighty God against all of unbelieving humanity's sin throughout all of history from Adam to the very last believer on the very last day. Everything that any of us in Christ have ever done, he's going to take it and carry that burden and absorb it into himself. And that's going to mean facing the rejection of his father, whom he loves completely. Of course Jesus should ask to avoid such a fate. As a human being, he should not want to be separated from his Father's love and affection and secure relationship. And so he's asking to avoid it. It's not wrong to ask God to avoid suffering. It's not wrong to ask God that things would go well. It's not unbelieving to tell God, Father, I don't want to deal with this. I don't want to suffer this loss. I don't want to deal with this humiliation. I don't want to have to do this. Lord, take this from me if it's your will. Jesus is a human being as well as God in the flesh. He certainly, uh, uh, you know, sometimes in films, Jesus is depicted as this sort of like ghost-like apparition speaking with a weird voice. And you only see the back of his head because they're trying to respect the commandment. They don't really need to do that, I don't think, but I'm an exception. Uh, you know, it, it's, it's like he's a zombie, only he's a good one. And that's not the real Jesus. Jesus had human emotions. He had, he had human will. Uh, he's asking his father to give him a good thing instead of suffering. He's saying, I don't want to go to the cross. And so Jesus asks that the cup be taken from him. And yet in that, he is completely surrendered to his father's will. He says, my father, if it's possible, may this cup be taken from me, but not as I will, but as you will. He's submitting his request itself. He's submitting his very longings and desires to his father, praying this three times. He makes the request and he qualifies it with this posture of complete submission, if it's possible. But if it's not, I accept your will. Thy will be done. How often... Do we pray like this? Not asking God to bless our plans, but submitting our plans themselves to him in prayer. Uh, Paul Miller talks about how we often avoid praying for secular things uh, because we, we feel bad about it, and yet the result is that we don't submit it to God at all. He says, for example, this is in his book, A Praying Life, highly recommended. He says, we balk at praying, God... I want a vacation home. Would you get me one? He says, we don't mind acting selfishly, but but talking selfishly is embarrassing. After all, we aren't little children anymore. A vacation home is so beyond the purview of my daily bread that it feels presumptuous to ask God for one. 
So what we do instead of asking God for a vacation home is we look at our finances, we talk to a realtor, and we go buy one, all without seriously praying about the decision. He says, don't get me wrong, I'm not saying buying a vacation house is inherently sinful. God delights in giving his children good gifts and sometimes including vacation homes. But he wants to be a part of all the decisions that we make. He wants our material needs to draw us into our soul needs. This is what it means to abide in Christ, to to include God in every aspect of our lives. He says abiding is a perfect way to describe a praying life. For example, many Christians who are thinking about buying a vacation home might even pray asking God practical questions such as, God, can we afford this? God, will this be too much work? God, should we make an offer on this house? And these are good questions, but we seldom ask God heart questions such as, Father, will a second home elevate us above other people? Will it isolate us, God? In the first set of questions, God is your financial advisor. In the second set, he's become your Lord. You're abiding in him. You're feeding your soul with food that lasts. We shy away from prayers like these because they invite God to rule our lives. They make us vulnerable. You know, left to ourselves, we want God to be a genie and not a person. But in praying, your will be done, we're saying, King Jesus, I want you to rule over my life. The heart is one of God's biggest mission fields. This is a prayer that's surrendered to the Father's will. And we see Jesus persevering in praying for God's will to be done. He's praying with and for obedience, even as he advises his followers here to pray that you'd not be led into temptation. Uh, you know, one, one author shares uh, some stories about his own relationship with God, about how prayer changed him, how he learned to begin praying that, that God would change him. He talks about a time in the 1970s. He was young, he was going to college, married, had a kid, um, and uh, to, to kind of make ends meet, he was running a side job painting people's houses. Uh, it says it was New Year's Day of 1975, and we had run out of food, we had run out of money, and we'd run out of work. We'd sold our books, we sold our jewelry, and we had already sold our high school rings. And so we sat at our kitchen table, and we prayed that God would give us food. And the minute we finished praying, the phone rang, and it was a customer asking us if we could come over the next day in order to paint her house. And so the next day, he, he recognized that this was a, a prayer from God, and he told her that, and he, he even was bold enough to ask for an advance on it uh, because there's no, no point over-spiritualizing this. Uh, but, but what happened is that first night, God's answer to prayer for a physical thing was so palpable and so obviously timed that the coincidence was just surreal at their point of greatest need and desperation when they could not feed themselves or their baby. They prayed, and God answered, and he answered immediately. He said, that night I went to bed, and I prayed something more than asking for my daily bread. For the first time, I went to bed, and I asked God, God, would you please change me? He says, I wasn't even sure I was a Christian. At the very least, Christianity wasn't working in my life. I struggled with intellectual doubts. The Bible felt stale to me. It wasn't just a low point. My whole life had been this way. And the next morning, I woke up with a song in my heart and a hunger for God's word that has never left decades later. God changed me when I prayed, God, I want you to change me. Will you pray with me for that, that he would change our hearts, that he would give us a new obedience? 
that he would strip us of all of our idols, that his will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. You see, the struggle for prayer is a struggle to identify not only what God's will is, but my own self-will and to ask him to change me. Paul Miller talks about a story with his, his, his son, teenage son. Uh, um, you know, his, this was back before, you know, uh, broadband and, you know, the whole dial-up modem. You remember those? And uh, his, his daughter was trying to uh, uh, work on a paper and, and the modem, she couldn't get it to dial. Something was wrong. And he's like, all right, we got it. It's right there in the Dell box. So he gets out the Dell box with all the 8 million little disks, and he finds the one for the modem software. And he, uh, but, but, it, but it's empty. The little sleeve is there. There's nothing in it. And he immediately knows what happened. His son, Andrew, had borrowed it and not put it back. And it was obvious because it happened all the time. And so he yells upstairs, Andrew, get down here now! And Andrew comes down. Obviously, Andrew is really irritated for being talked to that way. And, and he says, now, I want you to find that modem disc. And he hunts for it. Of course, it's exactly where he left it, in the wrong place. Uh, and, and, and then they get on it, and everything's, everything's fine. You know, the modem's working again. And yet he's sitting there later that night, and this question starts needling him as God's call to repentance is often beginning as that question. Was I, did I handle that well? Was that the way I should have done it? And he becomes convicted that he had not brought God into that decision. He had not brought God into the issue with his son or with the modem. And he thinks through what he should have done. He thinks, what if instead of barking in order and throwing everything onto the power of my words to change my son, what if instead I had prayed, God, I'm really angry about this. I think my son did this. God, give me the grace to actually love him well and to treat him with respect, and to speak to him with gentleness and love and not accusation. And and then he says, and what if I had actually prayed for my son? Because he has a habit of this. Prayed, God, would you please help my son Andrew love people more, be more intentional, be more considerate and not so selfish? Uh, What if I had prayed for my son's heart to change instead of barking orders and putting it all on the power of my abusive words? And so he went to his son and he asked his forgiveness. And then he began praying for his son that God would actually help him learn to love, help him learn to think of other people and be considerate. You know, it's interesting. You look at all the Christian books on parenting, how few of them have lengthy chapters on praying for your children. You know, you can do all the right things outwardly. You can, you can, you know, take them to Sunday school. You can send them to children's church. You can bring them to church. You can have, you know, regular devotions every day around the dining room table. You can discipline them properly. You can do everything known. You can get them in the right school. You can get them with the right people. You can get them in the right programs. And yet, if God is not working, your children will not grow up to walk with God in faith and obedience. And they will not learn to love their neighbor. And they will not be people who are ready to sacrifice for the sake of of those who most need loving and caring for in our community. They won't be able to do it because it takes a powerful work of God in the human heart. Parents, I'm begging you, pray for your children every day, all the time. Every time they've got a a, a classwork project that they're stressed out over, that's your opportunity to pray for your child. Uh, That's an opportunity to pray for you, that God would change you so that you would be able to love your children when they are stressing you out seven ways from Sunday. It's the power of the gospel, friends. It's the power of God. God is not going to do without prayer what he has ordained to do through prayer. And Jesus is saying, when you pray, I want you to pray, thy will be done. 
it's hard to pray like this. Why is it hard to pray like this? It's hard to pray like this because certain things get in the way. Anxiety gets in the way and our own stubborn self-will gets in the way. Anxiety is something that stems from our lack of control. I'm not sovereign. You're not sovereign. You can't control what your children are going to do or what kind of people they're going to become. You can't, you know, control how your spouse is going to treat you or speak to you or love you or even be faithful to you. You have no control over that. And anxiety then starts grabbing levers for control. I'm going to control my spouse so that they will be faithful to me. I'm going to control my kids so that they will become good people. I'm going to... Let me know how that works. Um, You know... We grab control because we're freaking out inside, because we're not sovereign. And yet what anxiety is in God's economy is anxiety is always God's calling into communion with him in prayer because he is the one who is sovereign. He is the one who can change your spouse, who can change your kids, who can change your boss, who can change your neighbor, and who can change you and me. Anxiety is always a call of God. The first Bible passage I memorized as a freshly minted Christian in college was the one in Philippians about be anxious for nothing but in all things through prayer and petition let your request be known to God and the peace of God that that surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. You see, prayer with anxiety it's like like looking at, at, at at sparks flying around severed power lines. They're destroying everything they touch and yet, yet in prayer, bringing that anxiety to God in prayer and, and, and entrusting all of these situations to the one who, who loves you and cares for you, it's incredibly powerful. You know, when, when you pray continuously, you know, the traffic jam is not just a hindrance to your getting where you need. Uh, the slight from a friend is not just a relation thing you need to work on. Uh, the, 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 the pressured deadline becomes a door to God because all of these things are calling you into fellowship with your Father that you would pray continuously in communion with your Father saying, Lord, I can't fix this. I can't make it right. But you're the God who can and I trust you. Whatever you want, Lord, I'm surrendering it to you because you love me. I'm not going to get out there in front designing my life. I realize God, you've got me in a bigger story that's not all about me, and I just want to trust you and know you and see your power at work throughout that. Uh, Miller says, as you wait in prayer, you begin to see God work, and your life begins to sparkle with wonder because you're learning to trust again. Our anxiety gets in the way, but friends, it is actually an invitation to the life of prayer, the praying life, the life of the contemplative the one who knows and rests and trusts in the goodness and grace of our God and Father in heaven and his Son, our Lord Jesus. And yet what also gets in the way of my life is my big sinful self-will. It's easy sometimes to use prayer to baptize our self-will. Like if I really want a certain relationship, I can use prayer to get that relationship the way I want it to be. If I want a certain career path, I can use prayer to get that certain career path. And yet God doesn't ever bless that. God is not going to honor that. God is not an object to be used. He is one to be surrendered to. Thy will be done, not mine. And so, so even in prayer, we have to be careful because we're constantly realizing, you know, that, that we're damaged and, and that we're not in control. And, and prayer can't help us until we're submitting the entire question of my life to him. Um, brings us to a realization that I don't have power. I can't have power over other people. I'm just going to destroy them and destroy my relationship with them if I try. We're completely dependent on our Father, even for the very next breath. 
And yet both our anxiety and our stubborn self-will are messengers from God. They're, they're saying, I want you to reconnect with your father who's in control. God is saying, I'm the one who writes the story of your life. I'm the one who fills all of your joys and all of your tears with meaning because I am the one who loves you. We see here in this prayer in Gethsemane, prayer that's surrendered to the Father's will, whatever you want. We see also why it's so hard to pray that way because we see it in our own hearts. Uh, And yet these things are calling us into prayer. And yet there's something else that we see in this passage. We see Jesus already suffering for us in prayer. It's remarkable, the picture we see of Jesus here. Verse 37, 38 says, Jesus took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee along with him, and he began, notice the language, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. It's remarkable language. Some of you have known the depth and despair, the tears, the sorrow, the heaviness, the being overwhelmed in your soul, and yet with Jesus, it's something so much larger. Uh, you know, one of, the, one of the reasons why I, as a religious historian, find this account so compelling and so obviously historical is because of the reality with which Jesus of Nazareth is presented in this passage. See, were those earliest Christians fabricating a narrative of Jesus Christ facing death, they would have written it completely differently. We would have expected, you know, a bold and dashing heroic Jesus triumphantly facing his fate unafraid. We would expect, you know, Jesus to confront death with with Roman virtus, with masculine bravado. We would expect powerful courage driving an insatiable desire for the glory in the minds of humanity. We would expect a, a knight in shining armor staring death in the face and mocking it with contempt. We would expect Braveheart shaking his fist at the English. We would expect Jesus to go out in a blaze of glory, not in a helpless, pathetic whimper. If they were making this up, that's what we would have seen, the blaze of glory. And yet, we don't. The blaze of glory would have sold really well in the ancient world. That Jesus would be something the early Christians could market. They could sell that sucker. They could promote it. It would be all the rage on Facebook. That Jesus would make the early Christians look good and powerful and strong. That's a Jesus that would give them cultural inroads into a Roman world that was all about virtus and masculine bravado. But that's not the Jesus we see here. Instead, we see a blubbering Jesus who is grieved and saddened to the point of absolute abject despair. What's going on here? Jesus, in praying that the Father would take this cup from him, is already beginning to sip the cup. What's the cup? The cup in Hebrew literature was the cup of God's judgment. Jeremiah 25, Thus the Lord, the God of Israel, said to me, Take from my hand this cup of the wine of my wrath and make all the nations to whom I send you drink it. Isaiah 51, O Jerusalem, you who have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath, who have drunk to the dregs the bowl, the cup of staggering. 
Revelation 14, an angel speaks, If anyone worships the beast and its image receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he will drink the wine of God's wrath, which is poured full strength into the cup of his anger. Matthew chapter 20, the disciples had already asked, or Jesus had already asked the disciples, Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? They thought they were. They never could. Had they drank it, they would have been destroyed. Picture all of God's hatred and opposition to human cruelty and injustice. Picture all of God's rightful anger at the way we treat our planet and the way in which we treat the marginalized, the weak, the helpless, the way we treat even our spouses and our children and our parents and our family, the way we treat other believers with whom we disagree. Think of all of God's justice against all of us who have not looked out for the fatherless or the widow or taken up the cause of the orphan or the poor, who have not looked out for the needy of the world. Think of the judgment of God against all of the murder and all of the anger and all of the rage and all of the selfishness and all of the greed, all of the immorality, all of the arrogant pride, all of the betrayals that flow from our human heart as a result of the fall. Picture all of that poured into a single cup. All of God's rightful rage against the brokenness and enmity in our hearts. And that is what Jesus is already looking into. He is smelling the fumes of that coming up into his nostrils. He's reached down and he's taken the chalice. He's picking it up. He's moving it to his mouth. He's asking his father every step of the way, Father, if there's any other way, let this pass, but not my will, but thine be done. He is drinking judgment. He's already beginning to be destroyed by it. Jesus is already beginning to experience the wine of God's wrath, which is poured full strength into the cup of his anger right there in Gethsemane. He's praying to God. He's praying to his Father. But for the first time ever, the prayers are doing nothing. Why is prayer not comforting Jesus here? It's so disturbing when you take a look at Jesus' prayer life throughout uh, Luke 5, Jesus often withdrew to lonely places and prayed. He loved talking to his father. Luke 9, Jesus took Peter, John, and James with him and went up onto a mountain to pray. One of these days, he, Jesus went on a mountainside uh, uh, to pray and spent the entire night in Luke 6 praying to God. He loved and delighted in communing with his father with whom he, as the Logos, had been in communion for eternity. Jesus, in, in, in Luke 18, told his disciples a parable in order to show them that they should always pray and not give up. Jesus was constantly speaking with his Father in heaven, constantly in communion. He had been there literally for eternity. There was never a time when he spoke to the Father and heard silence. And now for the very first time, he's calling, and the Father won't pick up. And so he sorrowed and overwhelmed to the point of death. Some of you know what it's like when you need to get hold of somebody that you love. Somebody that always takes the call. Somebody who's always there. Somebody who never doesn't answer. Some of you know what it's like. You're expecting to reach them and they're not there. They always take the call. They pick up, but then they're not picking up. So you're messaging them. You're Facebooking them. You're texting them. You're you're calling them. You're doing everything you can, you know, but you're getting nothing, you know. Jesus is being ghosted by his Father. He can't get through. 
you know something's wrong. You don't know if, it's, if they're dead or if you're dead or if the relationship is permanently severed. But Jesus is being severed here. And so he sorrowed to the point of death. He cries out to the Father and prays. Here's nothing but silence. So he goes back and checks on his friends. They're asleep. He goes back to the Father a second time and prays. He goes back to his friends. Uh, they're asleep. Third time he comes and asks again. He prays again. You, you understand some of you something about Hebrew repetition. Oh, Absalom, Absalom. It's for emphasis. You understand that the, the angel's saying, Oh, holy, holy, holy. It's for emphasis. You understand when Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you. It's for emphasis. That's what repetition does in the Hebrew context. And here, three times Jesus is asking. Three times he's getting no response. His soul is overwhelmed here in Gethsemane because the Heavenly Father has already begun to turn his back on Jesus. Jesus is already drinking from the cup. The Father is no longer accessible. And Jesus is drinking the cup to the dregs. So that on the cross, Jesus cries out in Aramaic, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means in English, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Did the Father really forsake Jesus? You bet. And because he did, he will never forsake you. Because Jesus didn't get an answer, friends, you will get the full attention of your Father in heaven. He knows when you're speaking to him. Jesus has made sure of that. Jesus has drank the cup all the way down to the dregs and licked the bowl on the cross under the judgment of the Father so that you will never be judged if you have Jesus. On the cross, it is finished. It is paid for. It is done. Paid in full. There is no double jeopardy in the kingdom of heaven. It is done. It is sealed, signed, delivered. You are safe, friends. You have the love of your Father who calls you into communion with himself, calls you into relationship with himself because he loves you so that you might then turn around and say, Lord, not my will, but yours be done. In the movie Armageddon, years ago, focused on a, a burly oil mining veteran by the name of Harry Stamper, played by Bruce Willis. And Stamper had been called to take part in a last-ditch mission to save planet Earth from an asteroid that was barreling toward it so quickly there was nothing they could do to save themselves. And so his mission with his compatriots was to drill a hole deep into the asteroid's core and drop a nuclear bomb into the middle in the hope that the nuclear detonation would split the asteroid in two and the two halves would pass by, leaving planet Earth and all of humanity safe. And at the climactic moment, when the charge has been set and the shuttle is about to lift off the asteroid, something goes wrong, and it becomes clear that someone is going to have to stay behind to manually detonate the bomb. Without hesitation, Harry Stamper chooses that job and in the final minutes, he speaks by video phone to the command center in Houston and says his last words to his daughter, Grace. With tears streaming down her cheeks, the daughter burbles to her dad, everything good I have inside of me, I have from you. I love you so much. I'm so proud of you. And dad, I'm scared. Harry responds, there won't be anything to be scared of soon. I'll look in on you. I love you, Grace. Moments later, Harry kneels on the surface of an asteroid 
as it violently shakes with volcanic eruptions. Struggling to maintain hold of the detonator, he watches the shuttle safely escape, and then Harry stares, the beautiful blue planet rotating quietly in space. A gentle smile creases his rugged face, and he whispers, We win, Gracie. And then he presses the detonator. And suddenly the screen fills with a racing stream of images as seen through the love of this father's eyes. We see back in time to a sunny day when Harry is pushing his laughing little girl on a backyard swing set. We're treated to a blur of images reflecting the glorious and grainy moments of miraculous human life. We see a moment out in the future when Gracie will be dressed as a radiant bride on her wedding day. And then the asteroid erupts in a blinding explosion, fractures in two, and careens clear of the planet as the saved of the earth explode in wild cheers of joy. Friends, the Bible teaches that God saw the consequences of sin and cruelty and hate and evil, and it was hurtling at our planet like an unstoppable force. And unlike the character in a Hollywood movie, God himself would not have been destroyed had he done nothing, but we would have. And unlike the Hollywood tale, this destruction was actually the just deserts of a planet that had forsaken its creator but at a level infinitely larger than the love of Harry Stamper for his daughter Grace, God the Father and God the Son looked with compassion on the children of this earth and chose to intervene in a way that required a cataclysmic self-sacrifice. Friends, in Gethsemane, Jesus pushed the detonator. And because of that, you shall be saved. Let's pray. Father, This is what you did for us, this love and this beauty. And we worship you. As a fallen planet, we give thanks to you, our Father and our God. In the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen.